Welcome to the Indie Writer Podcast, where we talk about all things writing and indie publishing. Today, we're excited to be talking about epic fantasy with Leo Valaquette. Leo grew up in rural Ontario, Canada, but had become a regular tourist of Tatooine, Middle Earth, and that barn in Charlotte's Web by the age of eight. He trained to work in museums before taking up the pen as a journalist and newspaper editor and then as a corporate business writer and Marcom consultant for hire. This love of the fantastical, the historical, and also finding the root of a story fuel his need to create worlds of his own. A cancer survivor, Valakant has been contesting with metastasized melanoma since late 2019. He lives with his wife and son by a lazy old river. Leo, we're so excited to have you. To kick us off, today our topic is epic fantasy. And usually we just like to hear about how did you land on that as as your genre? What drew you to writing fantasy? Yeah, it's an interesting question because because like I said in the bio, I started off in that like grade three, grade four zone reading fantasy works like The Hobbit and Charlotte's Web and and then I took this weird switch into reading kind of the very adult uh, thriller and, and uh, women's fiction that my mother had laying around. Then I kind of came back to it in my mid-teens. I don't know. I guess it, it was always just the appeal of, of, of stories that were just not here, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, and that were there somewhere else. And, and my reading tastes as a teenager, and I'm very much a child of the 80s, ran the gamut from middle earth to dune so it was a and clive barker so there's an interesting mix of uh of horror and and science fiction and fantasy so so just generally the uh, the appeal of things that are fantastical and and out there but ultimately there's still some kind of human connection in there somewhere so could you tell us just for the listeners who don't know a little bit about your newest novel yeah well it's actually well it's my first first to be published novel it's Bane of All Things. Bane of All Things. It's the first book of what I hope will be at least a four-book series called A Silence of Worlds. And I will read the blurb off the back. In the four kingdoms, the holy clerisy preaches that the gods are dead, and prayer is the path to hell. Anyone who defies doctrine is punished for heresy, but blind faith condemns soul as surely as betrayal. Ren Rooscroft, once sworn to serve as the clerisy's loyal soldier, finds himself torn between conscience and duty one bitter winter's night. Those slain include his best friend, felled by his own hand. Jocelyn Ombre has been tormented all her life by the voices and their visions, an affliction that could have her facing a witch's pyre, if only she could understand what they want. Banished to Dragon's Claw Abbey at the edge of the world, Ren and Jocelyn discover a place built on more than penance and forgetting. What they find at the Claw will turn them both into fugitives hunted by Hellspawn, heretics, and Ren's former commander. But more sinister forces have awoken. Ancient things eager to settle old scores and find pawns among the outcasts. When they cry for vengeance, the living sword must have a hand to wield it. A mortal that can reshape into the earthbreaker, the soul taker, the bane of all things. And I guess the only thing I would add beyond that blurb is that um, I guess the, the way my stories tend to evolve is they tend to be stories about broken people. And there's not really what you would call a uh, chosen one motif so much as people just find themselves in circumstances where for whatever reason they're the ones who just step up and take on the burden of things that need to be done when no one else will 
when wiser souls may have had the sense to run in the other direction. Yeah, I'm curious about something you said earlier, which was that I think like a lot of folks, we tend to just kind of grab the novels that are on our parents' shelves and that becomes an introduction to reading. I know that a lot of people that are into fantasy discovered that kind of in middle grade. What do you think drew that to you later in life? I don't know. I mean, it was interesting because there were were two kind of interesting things that happened to me around grade three was, first of all, my mother, if you remember the Double Day Book Club, where you'd uh, get your little pamphlet in the mail every month and then you could order books and they get delivered to your house and and my mother joined that club and and she for her initial four free books she got the novelization of star wars so this this tells you how long ago this was and and several of eb white's books and then the following year my grade three teacher started reading the hobbit to us in class and she couldn't finish it before the summer break and i borrowed the book to finish reading it over the summer and I was the kid too, who at that same time was going to the library and pulling down picture books that of the, you know, of ancient empires of the Middle East. And, and I just had this interest in, in exotic things, you know, whether it was from the history of this planet or some fictional place that doesn't exist. And later in life, well, you know, I was kind of one of those socially awkward nerds in high school who gravitated to other socially awkward nerds and discovered something called Dungeons and Dragons. And, uh, and that kind of set a path right there too. Yeah, I'm curious if Carrie has some insight to that because I know she plays D&D. My family members do and I've played a few times, but it's not something that I'm really naturally skilled at. I would love to hear from both of you if, if being in that world has helped with your world building or with just keeping track of the rules of your universe. Because I know that like being a master in Dungeons and Dragons, you have to have some of those same skills. So what does that relationship look like? Carrie, I'd love to hear your answer as well. So for me, I have a really hard time keeping track of all the rules. So I have to have the player's guide in front of me and I have never DM'd. So fantasy world building is kind of a little bit of a departure for me. I think that, have you DM'd, Leo? A bit. I have to admit that me and my friends were horrible D&D players in high school because all we wanted to do was was build super characters and then and then pit them in gladiatorial combat with each other, essentially. So the role-playing part of the role-playing game kind of got lost. But, you know, there was very much, you know, this was the time of where Forgotten Realms as a campaign world was becoming the big thing for D&D. Ed Greenwood, who's a fellow Canadian up here, created the Forgotten Realms. And there was so much, I, I was just so enamored of the world building materials that came out like there's this one signature locale in in that world called Waterdeep it's a city and and they and my friend who you know had the money I didn't uh would go to the hobby store and buy all the stuff and then and then we'd all kind of gravitate to his house and play it and look at it and there'd be like they came out with a Waterdeep map and and role-playing kit so that you could lay out this thing on the floor and you'd have the map of the city that was like six feet wide and ten feet long it was insane so I was just really you know, obsessed with that. I was, I was one of those guys who was really into the map and the world and the world building aspect so much so that I probably drew more maps for stories than I ever actually wrote the stories to take place in those worlds. That's what my husband does. He's like the, the world builder. He wants to, he's obsessed with the maps and creating the areas and stuff like that. I tend to be more like 
excited about other people's worlds that they've made. I My books are more on that women's fiction thriller side of things, but I love epic fantasy. I love to read it. I love to see where all of those different threads are going in a game. So I think that's awesome that you created that geography or, you know, sunk into geography that somebody else had made. Yeah, for me, the story always starts with geography, right? It always started with the map, you know, and, and a lot of my teen years and, and college years were spent with bristleboard and markers because I just had to visualize it, right, in, in some fashion. Uh, and, then, and then the story kind of took root from there. Just thinking, we did a fantasy episode, but it was like two and a half years ago now, I feel like, and I'm trying to just remember a little bit of what we talked about then. But as you're talking, I'm just wondering, is there anything missing like with some of that, I guess, multimedia process of being able to like hold a map when you play D&D and build those worlds? And then now in the digital area era where a lot of the world building software is all on the computer, like what does that look like? That's just really fascinating to me. Do you still draw maps that you can physically hold or because you you mentioned playing D&D they'd be like really big and on the floor and you're kind of getting in there do you still do that for your books do you do you make physical artwork that is uh, three-dimensional or do you do all of that on the computer in my case I have kind of um, three or technically four different um worlds as it were that I write stories that that take place in so the one that the world of bane of all things is just one of those ones and i still very much want to create and have those maps and and have them in a physical form because i just like the feel and look of it right even with the release of the book in the past two weeks i I i've got the digital files of the book that actually went to press because the map that's in the book i i did that myself on a uh, program called incarnate which uh, is fantastic and and I couldn't be content to just have the digital file on my computer and have it in the book. I had to blow that sucker up to two or three times the original size and get a local print print on demand service to print me print for me on stiff uh, foam core board and and send <laughs> send it to me in the mail. Now it's right here on my office wall. So I'm very much still you know just just enamored of the maps and and the look and feel of that. And uh, and I'm one of those people that if I pick up a fantasy novel, the first thing I'm going to look for is the map. And if there isn't one, I'm like. Oh, okay. Well, I guess the author decided to make that decision. But how could you not have a map? How could you? How could your brain not start with a map? And some stories, if they're in a limited look, you know, if people aren't traveling around a lot, you know, there there's not a lot of places to keep track of. But uh, but it's just it's just I'm just wired to just focus around that map, and I just love the physical aspect of it. So even if it's something I create with a digital tool today versus you know the bristle boards and markers thirty years ago. I, I still want a, f- a physical form hanging on the wall because it's just, it's just cool. Yeah, I I feel the same way. I like having the map. It just kind of grounds you in the setting, and that that is the question I wanted to ask you too. Since okay, so you start with the setting, you start with the map. How does that then inform your character building and the plot? That kind of springs from that. Yeah, it's where does it start, right? And and I you know character setting plot and it's kind of half of one three quarters of the other right and and different stories i've done it kind of happens in different ways i mean bane of all things itself started out as a short story idea like literally in 1999 and then it developed into a novel idea which i wrote in the early 2000s 
and then it sat idle while I worked on other things. And then I rebooted it a couple times in much the same way you would compare the various versions of Planet of the Apes we have now. <laughs> that's, that's how you can kind of compare the different, the two or three variations there's been. And really what drove those iterations of the story and me just finding myself wanting to come back to that story was character. Ultimately it was character. It was really kind of cracking the nut of who these characters were and what drove them and developing and enriching who they were so that no matter how epic the story is or how outlandish elements of that story and plot line might become, it's, it's ultimately anchored around, you know, the very real frail business of human nature and human emotion and, and, and whatever is giving someone agency to do what they do, whether it's a good idea or not. And does your, is your story follow one central protagonist or are there multiple characters that come into that? I know fantasy is often, you know, following different threads. What does that look like? How do you organize that? So when it comes to character, I am a bit astonished myself that Bane of All Things ended up being having the heft that it does. But I tend to want to avoid writing cast of thousands kinds of stories. I like to keep it fairly focused. So in Bane of All Things, we do have a couple of other viewpoint characters who have several chapters each throughout the book. But the primary character in this one is the protagonist, uh, Rin Ruscroft. But in the second book, which is written, that broadens out about, broadens out somewhat so that the uh, female protagonist, uh, Jocelyn, probably gets as much stage time as Rin. And then a couple other viewpoint characters, a chunk of the story as well, because they wouldn't stay, they wouldn't mind their place and stay where I put them. So, but even then it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's five viewpoint characters across what's going to be another 450, 500 page book. So it's, so it's still not quite cast of thousands and I'm, and I'm really trying to keep, you know, things fairly tight if you can call 500 pages tight, but, uh, but yeah, I, I like to, um, prefer to uh, try and keep the story fairly centered around a few characters. Now, what engagements they have with porting cast is a whole other thing. And I guess the other thing is I'm, uh, we're not published by one of the big name fantasy publishers who are more willing to publish those 800,000 page monster cast of thousand stories, right? And, and I find myself as a reader even daunted <laughs> to want to tackle those things a lot of the time. So I think there's a, there's a happy middle ground to be found uh, between a nice, satisfying, rich, epic fantasy story versus those other works by uh, the big name authors that are in kind of a whole different weight class of their own. Well, and I'm, I'm realizing as we're talking that some of our listeners may not exactly know what defines epic fantasy. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, with all of this, of course, it's all very subjective, but I think to me, it really comes down as what are the stakes? Right? Because there's so many ways to slice and dice fantasy as heroic fantasy and, and sword and sorcery fantasy. And I think it really comes down to the stakes. Um, you know, how world-shaking is the plot? You know, how, what's the scope of the impact that the action or inaction of the characters will have on the world around them? Right. So if it's uh, so if we go way back to a Robert E. Howard Conan story where he's raiding the crypt and fighting and fighting the skeleton, animated skeleton to get the treasure or whatever. 
you know, the stakes to the character at that point are pretty high considering he could have his, you know, brains clawed out by a ghoul. But, but in terms of global impact, you know, the story, you know, is, is, you know, is not what you consider epic. So I think it really comes down to is just, you know, how many hundreds of thousands or millions of lives stand to be impacted by, by what the characters, uh, the main characters do or don't do. You know, you look back to the stuff I was weaned on. We, we look back to Lord of the Rings, which, you know, seems like a fairly substantial piece of work. And when you consider that it really is just one book broken into, well, I guess seven parts and three volumes or whatever way it's chopped up. You know, it's a fairly weighty story until Robert Jordan came along and uh, and Tad Williams came along and, and our, George R.R. Martin came along and then they coined this whole other thing called Grimdark. But I mean, it's just it's just the sheer size of these things, right? That a single series is becoming, you know, a, a lifetime career for an author. You look back even to the 80s, to the authors then who kind of followed after Tolkien and, and set the stage for what was to come, like uh, Terry Brooks, you know, whose first book of his Shannara was obviously very much influenced by Lord of the Rings, but even his subsequent novels in the Shannara series were standalone novels because each of those first three books involved a self-contained story uh, with a different generation of the same family. And they were, you know, f I don't know, five, 500 page novels, but they still, but they still qualify as epic fantasy just by virtue of the fact that, you know, if, if the main characters didn't step up and answer the call and stop the bad guys or whatever the threat was, you know, the whole world as they knew it stood, stood in peril. I think there's a, some basic elements that define what epic fantasy is, but despite despite the way series have gone these days, I don't think length is is necessarily one of the defining characteristics. I think there's an episodic quality to non-epic fantasy. You know, it just kind of gets the job done, and like you said, it's a self-contained story. And I see a lot of that in YA. You know, it's just it's a one story, it's a one off, and it doesn't really make a lot of impact on the world in general. It's, you know, one person's journey. So I like the way you define that. I know we t touched a little bit on the map versus character coming first, but um, I think world building is such a big thing when it comes to fantasy that a lot of listeners are just really curious of the nuts and bolts of how you keep track of all the moving parts as you write. Do you have a process for that? Do you have a, a world Bible or some people just are, are really good at leaving margin comments and, and keeping separate documents? What does that look like process it's, for you? It's evolving. I have a lot of messy notes. I have a world Bible that I was like back in the early 2000s when I started really getting into the story in this world more. I still have the word doc dated from like 2002. And it's like a it's it's like a sixty five thousand word body of work in itself, which which is like a gazetteer, right? It just goes through geography, culture, dress, technology, currency, you know, how the two moons work and the cycles of the moon and and all, and half of what's in there. That document now is outdated with how I've evolved the story since then. But for me, it you know, it really was a case of kind of building that that gazetteer, as I called it back then, or that Bible. And it was more of a Bible of the world than it was anything to do with actual plot or character to the point, you know, I was a, a lad in my twenties who got, you know, had to draw the line between, well, am I actually going to write a story here finally, or am I just going to spend all my time creating a world for, you know, just for my own amusement. And then when I, 
let the story rest for a while and came back to it and rebooted the idea and, and, and changed things around, you know, then, then that became a whole second companion document. So it's Word docs with margin notes and, and tables of index tables of contents and, and, and all that good stuff. And too much of it is still just floating around in my head and should be written down. That hasn't been. But yeah, you can't, uh, you can't, you can't do this without keeping lots of notes in some kind of organized fashion in a document all its own, aside from the actual, you know, work in progress doc of the novel itself. I have a question. What about the magic system? Did that evolve with your gazetteer or did that come as a result of character development or convenience or how did you develop that? The magic system. Well, the magic's the, the most defined part of the magic. Well, there's several different magic systems. The one that's most structured and I don't, dig into is is sorcery in in my book sorcery is the practice of summoning and commanding demons and the only way that a sorcerer can do this is if they agree to a covenant with the great deceiver who as he's known in this part of the world that the story begins in in the first book who basically you know is lord and master of the demons and the demons are creatures of smoke and shadow. They, ha they have no form. So basically through ritual, a sorcerer can summon a demon, constrain it to a form. You know, they could make it into a housefly to be a spy. They could turn it into a sex slave succubus. They could do whatever they want, right? But they have to follow these rituals to the letter. If they get anything wrong, the demon has, you know, is fully allowed to uh, turn on them and do whatever they want. And it also involves... Uh, some unsavory practices involving the blood of innocence and, and stuff like that. So you really are damning your soul by, by engaging in this covenant and, and practicing this art. There's also a, and that was very central originally to the story was the practice of sorcery and developing that. And then there's another culture that doesn't come in a lot in the first book, but the, the other dominant practice on the world is very much shamanistic related to the natural world. And it, it's a variation of what you'd find on earth that's practiced in a lot of cultures called animism. And it, I would say, is the most natural native magic system, as it were, that's on this world, whereas sorcery is kind of, let's just call it an import. And then there's the uh, kind of the miracle quotient. So there's entities that have the ability to grant powers to their followers, you know, entities that otherwise are known as deities. And obviously you need to have some kind of check and balances on that or else you have super power characters and God in the machine issues. But um, a lot of this is kind of evolved over time with the most key thing that needed to be developed, you know, as I realized, was you really need those checks and balances. It doesn't matter what kind of supernatural power, what kind of magic it is. You know, there has to be a cost, there has to be a price, there has to be something that you can't just snap your fingers and make an army disappear, right? Or half the life in the universe return. Uh, but I think that's been a key thing that's evolved over time is me thinking, realizing, you know, how are these things working based on where they're, what are the origins of these powers? And then what are the natural checks and balances you need to have to avoid that God in the machine problem? And you mentioned, which I think is common with a lot of fantasy writers from conversations I've had, 
that you you reached a point where you were doing lots of world building and you're like, okay, I need to go ahead and write the story. So how much did the rules of the world change once you started writing? Did your characters then inform some things that you went back and changed? Or was it pretty all set in stone, the world, you know, the rules of your new universe? Well, look, put it this way, the story, the world as it was with all that gazetteer writing and development in the early 2000s, probably had the story in what have been like a 12, 1300s European level of technology, pre-gunpowder. Whereas now, it's like, the best way I describe it, it's like you know, where the story starts, at least with this part of the world, for kingdoms, it's very much the, uh, the 1600s with gunpowder technology. No, I'm I'm playing. If you're if you're a real historical nerd, you'll know the difference between a doglock and a flintlock in the evolution of fire or black powder firearms. But I'm playing. I'm even playing that we're not quite at flintlock yet. We're still at doglock because that's going to be the next technological innovation. So the nature of the world in terms of what level of technology it's at, and and then I've you know as I developed the story, you know I realized you know, and this is something you know that's always interesting with with fantasy fiction in general is. So much of it is based on these or influenced by different periods in Earth's history. And so many fantasy worlds and settings are, you know, European influenced for a whole lot of reasons we'll go into here. But but what's interesting when you take a story and kind of bring it into that 1600s period, well, you look at what was happening in Europe on Earth at that time. You know, there's Spain, England. You know, Holland, you know, it was a global power struggle. It was a colonial expansionism. You know, it was rape the world for its resources so we can enrich ourselves at home. And as the story evolved and I found myself interested in kind of evolving and advancing the technological timeline ahead from that kind of medieval dark age period, I started to think and realize, well, what if it was also a variation of that time frame where colonial expansion never happened? Because so in the history of this world in the past 700 years, there's been two incidents where these four kingdoms, for whatever reason, attempted some form of colonial expansion, only to get their asses kicked and sent with their tail between their legs back across their own border. So the kind of, you know, exploration and conquest and exploitation of the New World, as it were, or of the Orient or of Africa doesn't happen and hasn't happened in this world because it failed essentially. So as the stories evolved and I've thought about, you know, and I've become a little more aware about avoiding and, and, you know, or playing with some of the classic tropes of the standard fantasy world and the European influence of epic fantasy, I've, I've thought about, you know, what are some of the consequences, you know, if things didn't happen uh, in these, in this setting, the way they happened in our world. And that's kind of time period where it was similar in terms of technology and and politics and all that good stuff. That's really interesting. And so you have to do a little bit of alternative history research in there too. It sounds like your story kind of blends the two genres a little bit. Uh, so is that something, do you have influences that have done that really well? I, I, I like to be able to look back and say it was all part of a plan. It was more of a case of realizing I've got this area of the world, which is, like I said, Western Northern Europe, and it has this history of, of failed expansion and, and wars that were in foreign campaigns that were essentially lost. But on the other hand, the, this area of the world is very much under the grip, the same way that Europe was under the grip of the Catholic Church at that time, without any rival. 
So it was kind of it, it was kind of backing into it more than a deliberate plan from the start. Where I realized, well, I've just kind of ended up at this point, and I realized, okay, what impact does it have on on an area of the world or a culture or a nation when they have this history? And it makes them a little. And I thought, well, maybe it makes them a little xenophobic. They are a little reluctant to uh, sail and see what's past the horizon. They're not really interested in a lot of uh, engagement with foreign lands and foreign peoples. You know, they may trade at, and, and engage with them at, at, at different locations, but they're not actively wanting to explore and travel across their own borders much. You tend to develop a pretty homogenous kind of culture. In my case, the church itself is very much a moderating influence that's kept. It's almost like if you read God Emperor of Dune, if you're familiar with that, the, the fourth fourth book in, in Frank Herbert's Dune series, you have Leto, Leto Atreides became the worm, right? And then there was Leto's peace where he had like 4,000 years or whatever it was where he enforced his own kind of just peace and stability and stagnation, you know, on the empire. And this is kind of where the story is here is, you know, that's very much the case in my world for at least for hundreds of years now, this kind of insular kind of mindset combined with the influence of the church who likes things nice and stable because it makes it easy for it to maintain control has led to a you know a, a very homogenous and fairly uh, stagnant situation so do you have a, a section for us maybe just two or three pages that you wouldn't mind sharing the fool's fortune rode the swells of a mellow sea kissed by a late spring sun Rin perched on a coil of rope in the ship's forecastle and eyed the weapons store. The bosun's mate had been doing counts, but he left it unlocked when called away. Rin had seen enough for a count of his own. Eight doglog muskets, 16 pistols, 20 cutlasses, 24 paper cartridges for each firearm wrapped in oilskin to keep the powder dry. A trained soldier needed just one shot to get the job done. It would be so easy. Rin could prime, load, aim, and fire a pistol four times in a minute. These weapons were well kept, flint snapped to ensure a strong spark and no misfire. He imagined the taste of cold iron on his tongue, the bite of his teeth on the muzzle as he pulled the trigger, all over in a blast of brimstone, fitting enough considering the deepest hell must already have a choice spot reserved for him. But that would be the coward's way out. He owed Sablewood's dead too much to deserve such a quick end. Even now, five months later, the awful gurgle as Quentin died drilled his ear like a ravenous shipworm. He couldn't escape the cold accusation of a mother and daughter's dead eyes. Old Jarek's final curse still chilled his soul. And the smell, the smell lingered worst of all, the blood and shite stench of a battlefield. Sergeant Havelock stumped across the deck, his squat barrel body immune to the roll of the ship, his swarthy features framed by a graying beard that resembled furry lichen on old bark. He wore the mail and hardened leather of a palatar, complete with his shoulder lanyards of rank and order. Wren's kit remained locked away, which left him feeling oddly naked in nothing but his trousers and a shirt. Havelock kept a wary eye on Wren as he picked up the weapon store's stray padlock. That lad should face the lash for being so careless, he said. Such an offense would have been intolerable had this been a true naval vessel and not just a tubby merchantman that operated under the Holy Clerisy's charter. I was keeping an eye on it, Wren said with forced casualness. Havelock snorted. I could tell. Wouldn't be the first time a man ate lead rather than take his sentence at the claw. So I've heard, Wren said. Serve eight years at the, with the garrison at Dragon's Claw Abbey. 
get discharged with a clean record and a full pension. The clerics had dangled that sliver of hope to encourage good behavior and maintain morale. In truth, the odds were poor that any man condemned to the place would survive his eight years. Havelock and two other palatars had been tasked with escorting Wren to his new command, and they let him roam the ship between ports. Out at sea, he had nowhere to go but overboard, into the deep dark. Wren closed his eyes. He turned his head to relish the feel of the sun and the breeze on his face, and breathed deep of the briny air. He had considered escape, even fleeing south to vices where the clerisy's influence was weak. But fleeing to vices wouldn't ease his conscience or make the ghosts of Sablewood rest any easier. Lieutenant Rin Rooscroft, a penitent wretch who deserved his sentence, even if he and his superiors did not agree, didn't agree on why. Only in service to others, with no expectation of reward, do we atone for our sins, he murmured. I doubt Aegis had had rotting in a pus pit like Dragon's Claw in mind when he said that, Havelock said. You'll not be serving much of anything. Wren popped his eyes open to fix him with a hard stare. I will be serving a second command of the garrison, ensuring the safety of the sisters and their wards. And it's still sir to you, Sergeant. Protect the innocent and the helpless, as he should have done in Sablewood. It was the only honorable thing, the only acceptable thing he could do now. If that meant keeping up appearances as a dutiful palatar, so be it. He could just as easily have been stripped of rank and sentenced to a regular prison, even swung from the gallows. But Dragon's Claw desperately needed experienced officers. The situation in that place had to be darker than pitch. Havelock knuckled his brow, padlock still in hand. Yes, sir. Very good, sir. I'm still within my authority to knock you on that fine arse should you act out of turn, sir. His left hand had come to rest on the pommel of his sword, which left Wren painfully aware of his own lack of armament. My fine arse expects no less, Sergeant. Captain says we'll be reaching Pelagos by nightfall, Havelock said. Last stop before the claw. He tossed the padlock up and caught it. Pardon my lack of faith, sir. You'll be locked below till we're off again. That was cool. I'm so excited to read the rest of the book. Yeah, sounds really good. So... What craft books have influenced you throughout the years and anything in particular you would want to recommend to our listeners? One of them is, I think it's Deborah Chesterton, uh, the fantasy fiction formula, I think it's called. It's buried somewhere on the bookshelf right here. She, she was a big influence on um, Jim Butcher, the uh, the guy who wrote, writes the Dresden Files, and he was one of her students. So yeah, it, it's an interesting book that talks about a lot of technical aspects specifically of writing fantasy and some interesting details of of a structure where she talks about scenes and sequels what is a scene and what is a sequel and and when she says sequel she doesn't mean another book she means you know if you've had some dramatic thing happen in the story what's kind of the scene that comes after that you know as the digest it ruminate on it how does the character kind of then decide what to do next as a result of that right so there's there's a lot of interesting stuff that's in there and one of them that was really influential on me years and years ago and i still have a copy of it was uh it's orson scott card i think it's called writing science fiction and fantasy and it's it's a very thin book it's not a lot of detail it's always helpful i think for anyone at any stage of of becoming a writer or well, I shouldn't say becoming a writer. If you're, I always make this point to people. If you write, you are a writer. You're just trying to become a better one. So anyone who's at whatever level of that journey, it's just good to get, I think, to read a variety of how-to or books like that by different authors. Just get different perspectives on the craft of writing. 
uh, the the uh, the key most important thing to take away being that just but just because this whatever it is may work well for this author doesn't mean it will work necessarily well for you. You just need to you know find your own groove and uh, go with that. That's great. I it was I haven't read that book, but I have heard of that concept of scenes and sequels before, and I find that it is really helpful because you just can't have that nonstop action. It's almost like what you were saying before about the character that the character can't be super powerful. The character can't beat all things. There's got to be some sort of different kinds of conflict. Otherwise it'll just exhaust the reader. Mm -hmm. And I think even outside of fantasy, that's probably good for any writer who's writing something that's very, you know, action paced to always give the reader those windows to just absorb what has just happened before they're ready to move on you know, to the next thing. The characters are human. They they need that too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the key mm-hmm. thing, right? So Leah, do you have any other advice for anyone just getting started who maybe wants to give epic fantasy a try? Try it as a writer or try it as a reader? <laughs> well, I was thinking writer, but uh, readers as well. Most of our listeners are indie writers. So it's it's great to just hear from folks who want to try something new that was a trick question because mm-hmm. you know the the classic advice is if you want to be a writer read a lot and i hold to that where i try and read as much as i can and i read a variety of different things i mean over the years my interests have spanned i've i've read pulp fiction spy novels and and westerns and and like i said you know colleen mccullough and the thorn birds books and stuff like that that my mother would have on the shelf and and i think it's just important to just read a variety of different genres and and I think, and this is a question that someone asked me on my book launch video last week was, you know, how do you come up with ideas that are original? And you can't read everything that's out there to think that you've got your finger on the pulse of, you know, this is the state of epic fantasy today. Because there's so much out there and so many self-published authors, people publish in different ways and capacities. There's just, you know, back in the 80s, I could actually walk into a bookstore for a couple of weeks at a time and say, oh, there's nothing I haven't bought and read already. You know, there's nothing new here. You know, we don't live in that world anymore. So it's just so much, uh, you have to kind of just come to terms with the fact that more than anything else, there's just new twists on old ideas, but there's, it's very hard to come up with a totally original idea, just a new twist on one. And I find it valuable that I can only read so much, but I find it interesting to just hit up different top 10 lists or things like that and, and just read, you know, the blurbs for a book and get a sense of where the author's taking the story or read their first chapter. And, and I think that kind of research is important as an author. If you kind of want to get your f- feet wet, uh, writing fantasy, epic fantasy. But, uh, but on the other hand, you know, you've got a learning curve and that's just the fact of it, where you just need to develop your skill of the craft and you just need to write. And, and don't assume that you're f- the first thing you write, the first book you write, you know, is something you're going to publish. You could write, I mean, in my case, I, I, you know, I say bane of all things. If I add it up and break it out, you know, I say bane of all things is, is the seventh of the eight books I've written. So I, make, I always make a point of saying it's my first to-be-published novel versus my first novel. And in my case, and everyone's journey is different, and the length of that journey is different. But the most important thing is to just practice your craft and, and write the stories you want to write. Write the stories that resonate with you and appeal to you in some way. You know, they might be very derivative of other fiction that's out there, and that's okay. But the key thing is you need to just develop yourself as a as a engaging writer. 
and then, you know, as you gain that confidence, you know, I think then in, in the originality of your ideas, you know, may become a little more fertile and, and start to flow more. Well, this has been an honor just to get to chat with you and, and uh, talk about epic fantasy. And before we let you go, I want to make sure that you tell all of our listeners, you know, what you're working on next, how to keep up with you, where to get Bane of All Things or anything else that you want to mention. Yeah, well, Bane of All Things right now is available on the websites, at least uh, just about everywhere with Amazon. All the websites. Yeah, pretty much all the websites. (laughs) Where fine books are sold, yeah, with with Barnes and Noble and, and and I think Books a Million and the other big U.S. ones and and Amazon.com, where it is in store actually on the shelf, that's still kind of happening because the book, like I said, just became available as we were we are recording this uh, eleven days ago, but yeah, if if you know you know hit up Amazon, hit up Barnes and Noble, the books at least is there, and then you can see where the uh, purchase and order options are as, as that continues to evolve. I'm Canadian, so uh, Canada is obviously important on my list, so it's good to see that. In Canada, our version of Barnes & Noble is called Chapters Indigo, and Chapters is stock in the book across the country. It's awesome to see. And then beyond that, my website is leovalleycat.com. It's very simple. And I have a book side of that, which has the links to the Amazons and, and some other places too. And then of course the public our publisher Inkshares also has you can acquire the book from there as well. Thanks again, Leo. This has been such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Indie Writer Podcast. We want to thank the Writing Block community for your continued support. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or at writingblock.com. No okay. Remember to subscribe, share, and tell your friends. Thanks, everyone, and happy writing.